recorded live. All right. Hey, everyone. It's uh, Lou Lombardi, uh, a.k.a. Ludini from the Ludini Rock and Roll Circus, and uh, welcome to yet another uh, interview, part of our interview series here. Um, today I'm speaking with singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, all the way from up there in Ontario, Canada, eh? <laughs> Mr. Ed uh, Roman. Uh, Ed, welcome. How's it going, eh? <laughs> Hello, <laughs> how are you, man? Oh, no, good. I was going to say, you're not wearing a toque, are you? I don't know if oh, you did that joke you know what? I was just, I was going to go, is Lou going to know the record? <laughs> did he listen to it as a kid? You know, did he have it at Christmas when they released it? And there's Getty on the sleeve. Well, hey, 10 bucks is 10 bucks, you know. You know. <laughs> that was the greatest, wasn't it? Okay. All yeah, right, just the, that whole yeah. era of people that were even in and out of Canada and the United States, too, that were collaborating. I mean, Bob and Doug McKenzie, Doug Thomas, and... and um, Sorry, I'm trying to remember his name. Oh, jeez. Uh, uh, from SCTV. Uh, Rick Moranis. Uh, Rick Moranis, Right. Yeah. The two of them were, were in their own right amazing comedians. They still are today. And and uh, Doug Doug's brother was Ian Thomas from the Ian Thomas Project, who was also a huge band in the 1970s as well, right? Uh, yeah. Painted ladies and a bottle of wine, mama. Ooh. That was, that was him, right? <laughs> so... So having that whole connection with Rush and Getty and the Canadian sort of conspiracy and that it was just like oh that was I love that record I put it Canadian, on last Christmas I was listening to it I'm like wow the Canadian conspiracy I didn't know it was a conspiracy I I have some notes here to say that you like conspiracies and stuff like that too well I can't I, you know I I come from a really big political background my 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 dad was really heavily involved first of all in municipal politics for like 30 years. Okay. And, and on top of that, he was also the first coalition candidate ever in the history of federal politics, which meant that the, the leaders of each of the conservative and liberal party ousted their leaders and asked my dad to run as an independent in Ottawa, and he, run, and he won. And he was also police commissioner for 14 years, and he was also the chairman of the York region, of our region, for six years, and then had an untimely death at 55, and he died of a brain tumor, and he also fought multiple sclerosis for like 20 years in the process. But, but aside from that, because of international politics and that my uncle was involved in, because my uncle was also a very sort of, uh, you might say, a wealthy businessman in this country as far as the mining corporations were concerned. He had a big deal with uranium for the federal government, for uranium plants. And at the same time, you know, in that process, you can't help but not be, you know, either engaged by other people and or try or, or people try to coerce you into certain okay. issues. So, for instance, you know, without going into it, my uncle had Richard Nixon in his house dining. He had Brian Mulroney at his house dining. Uh, the oh, wow. Pope John Paul II came to bless the cathedral that my uncle built in the local town that we were living in. All of that made me, as a young boy and into my sort of teen years, privy to conversation and, at the same time, the realization that there's something else there's a bigger picture going on here that most people aren't aware of. And even my dad's sort of time in politics saw such corruption and collusion and stuff that was going on with the lobbyist system that was mostly being driven by sort of the corporate welfare uh, of things. Today, I can now say, you know, 20 some odd years after he's passed on the cusp of Father's Day and talking about this, that some of the things that he was talking about before he passed I, are coming to fruition today. And, and you, you, you know, things don't 
happen overnight always. They're planned. They take a long time in order for them to, to succeed. And then before you know it, changes happen, and the public usually is, is unaware or, or they're left in confusion because despite their disdainment for what's going on, they really don't have an opinion. <laughs> and, and, and I could point out so many situations, whether it's been in American politics and in my own case, but especially Canadian politics, where things you know, are being turned a blind eye to and the public it seems to be moot and mute, excuse me, on on the whole topic. Um, so uh, that for me it leads me into that channel of what a conspiracy is or conspiracy theory. And today, that those two words put together seem to alienate people because of their right. thoughts and opinions. But if you separate them, Lou, those two words, a conspiracy and a theory, they both have legitimacy in in their wording. And I mean, if you look it up in Webster's, what a conspiracy is and what a theory is, they both make sense. And theoretically, you know, there's things that have occurred that don't add up. And some of the things that have been changed very quickly happen almost seemingly instantaneously without, you know, resolve or the proper channels or, and or time being spent investigating and looking into what those things are. So it's very easy for me to, to kind of follow what that is and see what it is and also in some cases when I see things happening also go hmm you can kind of draw a picture out of this you know the old if it walks like a duck talks like a duck well it's probably a duck okay so with this um, uh, you know this this background in politics you know from your family and and uh, this this interest in you know the sort of how you notice that you know as you say things don't add up which uh, I think that, uh, you know, even the most uh, uh, mainline people, uh, you know, even here in the U.S. are scratching their heads uh, about the too. With all that, how, does, how do you get into music? Like, how, where is, how, t- tell me how, like, tell me what happens. How do you get into music? How do you, how do you become a musician? Well, with that said, you know, my, <laughs> I, I, I grew up in a very busy household because there were eight, eight of us. My grandparents, my parents, and four, my brothers and sisters and I, so four of us. Um, it was 1970s. There were poker games, bridge games, political meetings. Because we also had the farm and we had cattle, there was always cattlemen at the house. Um, and at the same time, you know, the TV and the radio and records, I'm talking vinyl, you know, uh, they offered me this sort of escape from the insanity of what was continually happening. But in that process, just by, you know, growing and learning from people in and around me, I started to realize the potency of, of what music was, especially in the language. And as a kid, too, I also struggled with dyslexia. So academically, there were issues with reading and writing and Music was just a natural way for me to sort of self, you know, just let it out and express myself and write stories and and not be so worried about being judged on spelling and grammar and and all of that. You know, if anybody knows anything about dyslexia, and, and I'll say two things about it. One, first, never look at it as a problem. There's so many people that are being diagnosed with new kinds of problems. It's just you, people that are dyslexic may be wired slightly different. And we're and because of the situation, the way that our, our cognitive skills work, it's not like we're stupid people, but we need to absorb things multiple times. And when we do that, we cannot help but have this sort of photographic imprint of the information because you're looking at it repetitiously. And out of necessity, 
That's why that happens. It's not that we're smarter, but our brain develops differently. So, and it's the same thing with other people. I've met bipolar people and autistic people, or people are like, "Why I'm bipolar?" I find them fantastically interesting people. And same thing with autistic people. Usually, they're they're more devout to a certain topic in in a situation. And socially, they may be awkward as far as the way the way they approach people and the subject matter they talk about. But they're highly intellectual people. Okay. So all of that allowed me then to say, hey, I want to do this. I want to play music. And artists like Jimi Hendrix uh, at a young age and Jocko Pistorius, because I'm a bass player by trade, and Bob Dylan or Marley or so many people in the jazz world of things, Mingus, uh, Charlie Parker, Coltrane, Cole Porter, there, uh, there was all, and not only that, in that era, because there's three generations of people growing up in a house, there's all of that music floating around, from rock right. and roll to folk music to jazz music to stage music to you know, anything you can think of. So I was like inundated with it. And at that time, you know, there wasn't technology and people on their cell phones in their bedrooms. It's like there's, we had three stations we got on our television. One was from like <laughs> Buffalo, New York, and the other two were Canadian stations. And other than that... You made your own entertainment, and you played right. games, and, and I sang songs for people in the kitchen when I was a kid, when people would come over and they'd laugh, because I'd write funny tunes or whatever, and then, you know, it was something about, you know, ducks in my pool or something like that, and then people, would, so I went, hey, there's got to be something here, there's an attachment for me. Okay, well, so how did you, how, because you're, you're a kid and you're entertaining your family with uh, the, these songs, were you playing guitar or? Yeah, there's a guy. We had my grandmother when, we, when they, my parent, grandparents first came here from Europe in the 20s. She had a job cleaning the Heinzmann house or uh, like the piano family, the famous piano family, his, like their their house on a regular basis. And okay. when my grandmother had finished after her service, she'd given. Mr. Heinzman had given her this beautiful old upright piano that was like a pre-patent piano even. That sat in the corner of our, like, front room where, like, the, the front door was and the staircase that led upstairs. And then my mom somewhere found, like, from the world-famous knapsack company, they made a travel guitar in the 60s. You know? Okay. And I had, it was missing two strings, one of which, you know, I had, I think it was the D. I had a piece of fishing line on there. <laughs> that was my kind of way to be my, you know, to have my, my sort of zone. So it was, cool. it was those basic instruments that sort of gave me the gateway for it. Uh, okay. All right. So that's, so you're like, play your, so you've got like sort of like a sort of makeshift guitar uh, 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 travel guitar, and uh, you're writing. You start just start writing songs. That's the first thing you do when you pick up. So you're not sitting. You're not. You're working. Did you take lessons? Did you eventually get into being schooled musically, or you are you completely self-taught? Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, my mom wanted to put me in piano, and I took a year of it. And it was at a, you know in a church in a basement with a lady <laughs> with glasses, and it was just, it just it, for me it didn't feel right at the time because I was like eight. Right, and I still wanted just to make noise, and I think that's healthy for a young mind and ears to do that is just to listen to themselves. And being a teacher for almost twenty-five years, I know how valid that can be. But then, yes, of course, as I got, I never had any instruction through grade school, which drove me crazy because they removed the music program in 1976 when I would have got oh, wow. hands-on construction or instruction with the the actual music and a music teacher. High school is when I first got my hands on a bass. 
and then I, I skipped a grade, and then I I won the music scholarship, and I went on to Humber College, and that's where I studied jazz performance. And okay, I just, because I definitely uh, was going to talk about that because you definitely have jazz chops. Uh, <laughs> I can tell from your songwriting. I'm like, uh, I was just I was just listening to your record again this morning. Uh, Ros- like I think the song Rosetta is it called Rosetta? Rosetta Stone? Am I saying that right? Is that's, it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and that—I mean—that sounds like something out of the real book. Oh, um, th- oh, thank you. You know, I was trying to—I was trying to channel a little bit of Duke, and I was trying to channel uh-huh. a little bit of Horace Silver, and I was also trying a little Strayhorn there too. It's sort of my lush life kind of vibe. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, wow. Okay, there's a couple of things that we want to get to here today uh, because we have. Uh, Okay, so you've got you've got a record. You've been doing you've been doing records for a long time. Uh, you first go with you had a band in two thousand. Um, refresh my uh, I'm oh, that, around here. That was Special Ed and the Musically Challenged. I, yes, that's a great name, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was a play on on obviously my my time in special education because I was a, it's a dyslexia thing, but. We challenged ourselves with the music. The music was all over the place in terms of jumping from genre to genre, from song to song, and inside even a song we would do that. So, and then so in in consequence we would be challenging our listeners. And 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 yeah, you know some people are like man that's a self-deprecating name, you know, dude. And I'm like no 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 you don't get it right. You come in <laughs> come into the show and watch it. And Dave Patel and myself and Mike Friedman and Richard Pell. Uh, we were a quartet for a while, two bass players. We then broke down to a trio, just the way things were working. And we made music together for 20 years. We were, we were writing and doing stuff. I mean, I'm the principal songwriter. I write the stories, the arrangements, the melodies. But when we're collaborating, it's like the music evolves because that's what's supposed to happen. I mean, the writing process and doing that kind of a thing is its one of two things. You can either make it a, a dangerous situation because if you keep locked in a mode of thinking what was the last great thing that people liked I did and be worried about what that is, yeah. you're, you're, you, you very quickly stagnate in your thought process and your writing processes. The most important thing is you keep writing. And eventually you find that envelope that all that stuff needs to go into and it starts working. Even in the, in the songwriting process, it's like, and people say, well, where does a song come from? Or how do you write a lyrical idea or a melody? And I always say, look, you know, if you're in a car or you're in an elevator or you're sitting on the toilet or in a bathtub or walking down the street, you might get this thing, this melodic idea, very simplistic, could be a grouping of two or three notes. But, but as it evolves in your head, because it almost becomes this sort of concentrative, meditative thing, the ideas start to present themselves because it's like a path. And if you follow that path, the idea then starts to come. And, you're, and, and as it comes, you start to realize, wait a minute, this is what's supposed to be here. And inside of that, even through the collection of chords that may follow what that melody is, or even lyrically the chords that may follow that idea, all of that starts to show itself in a, in a, in a way. And same thing when you're working with other people and collaborating as the idea is presented, people start feeling those things. They listen to the emotion of the content, and they start to go, okay, this is, this is what needs to happen. And so often, I don't like that process where, you know, you're in a studio and people are saying, this is the way it has to be. Maybe you've written the tune, it's been arranged, you're a hired gun. But when you're collaborating artistically with a bunch of people, you just got to let it happen. 
And when that happens, there's a very beautiful thing. It's like an amalgam of, of multiple emotions that really take form. And, and, and the song becomes something that much more special because of it. When you, when you sit down, now, okay, so when you sit down to write, or do you sit down to write, is it just sort of like kind of come, like, because you were just sort of describing it as sort of some notes, a gripping of notes coming to you, do you sit down? And I wanted to ask you, too, being a bass player, or do you, do you write with the bass? Yes, I do, definitely. But it, see, the thing is, sitting down to write, I, I would say I sit down to write because I need to write out a chart and a melody to give to people. But when I write, it happens anywhere at any moment in time. Gotcha. That's, that's, the, that's the thing, is to pay attention to when that feeling comes. Because it comes often, sometimes it's frequent or infrequent, but so often you go, what was that idea I was thinking? And if you didn't sort of take that original sort of trailhead moment, you're sort of lost as to what had happened. So even just like little bits of scribbles and words or a melody idea or a chordal arrangement, even just, just to write it down somewhere so you have it as that figurehead when you go back. Because it was, it's there for a reason. So when you so um so you are you're you try to like uh or you don't try. You just as the muse sort of like uh uh comes upon you or contacts you or reaches out to you, you just sort of go with it and you it's never a sort of like, okay, now I need to sit down and write this next record. <laughs> well, yes and no, because like it's funny, you know, we're all a good buddy of mine, Dylan Hemming, once said, and he also, by the way, he's a fam, fabulous Hammond organ and piano player. He's a good buddy of mine. He just said, look, we're always defined by our influences and our limitations. And when you're you know, a, a musician that's writing and playing and performing, you might not always be listening to music all the time. I, that's one of the things for me that I, I try to consider myself more as like a feral musician living out in the bush, Sort of uh, not always paying attention to the to the track because the track's always running. So when I do that, I find I find more of myself inside of the music. But in the same token, listening to people like in the last six months, I could say I've been listening to the Derek Trucks band, Mingus again. Uh, I've also been listening to Dylan. I've also been listening to uh, Harry Belafonte. And I've also been listening to some Billy Joel, for that matter. And in that, the last grouping of tunes that I was just going through a bunch of Billy Joel numbers in my head, and I was, I'm so impressed with his sort of positioning of lyrics and the way that he sort of outlines the story. It's like very much like Dylan. And if you even hear him talk about Dylan, or Springsteen even, for that matter, talk about Dylan, those words themselves, they're conjuring what the total phrase is, okay? But ultimately, just even inside a few a few words, there's more going on in a level of, of depth inside of the writing. So I've been trying to find lyrical content that that has imagery to it. But at the same time, when you hear it, you know that there's something that's stirring something in you now. It's okay. making you think about things that you just saw or heard about but not directly saying it, obviously. Can you give me exa- an, an example of something you, you've, you've written or, or you're writing that... Well, yeah, I mean, like, I just... I'm For the new record that I'm working on, that'll be released in, in the spring of 2016, it'll be, like, probably 16 numbers. 
there's a tune on there that now the record's going to be called Red Omen, which is really an anagram of my own name. And okay. I wanted to try to pay homage to a lot of the people that are helping me and where I'm at right now in my career without directly saying it. So, for instance, one of the people is obviously Michael Stover, and there's a lyric in it where it goes, well, there's a red-hot stove down in Pittsburgh going out hard like a cherry pie. You know, call me a fibber, call me a liar, say it to my face like a cross between Benjamin Franklin and Ian Pace. Then there's another guy who introduced me to Michael Stover who used to be in the military, and the lyric reads, and I didn't believe the man from MI6 living out in the sticks who souped up his side-by-side side like evil Knievel. So in that phrasing, you know, you can conjure anything you want up in your imagination about what it could be, but really I'm trying to say thanks to Michael, and I'm trying to say thanks to Ken. So, you know, without directly saying, hey, thanks, Mike Silver, da-da-da-da-da, I'm using what, the elation that I'm feeling from these people well, in some well, poetic isn't, way. Isn't it- but what, okay, so this brings up an interesting point um, because you sort of—I know that you're, you're politically uh, uh, minded in, in, in that. So, you ha- I mean, one of the criticisms of sort of "quote unquote" political music has been that, well, okay, if you write a song about the Obama administration, well, then you know, eight years later, that's over, and we're on to something else, and so your song is now irrelevant. But if you're doing something more like the way you're describing it that you, 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 can, you can have that message in that time and it can be also become timeless. Well, that's it. In the, and on the last record, in the song I Told You So, which is the first track off the record, there's a lyric in the second verse that says that exact, to your exact statement, another hand inside the puppet of an ass falling down on the ground and crying, he's your savior. You know, it could be anybody that has that hand in that puppet. And who's the puppet this term? You know, I'm right. the, and, and then you don't have to say Nixon, Clinton, Bush. Obama, it's just, there's always a puppet. There's a bigger agenda, and that's what I'm trying to say. And we fail to see that. that The placation is our, the semantics that we find ourselves involved in arguing about it, when really there's, there's, else, there's, there's far bigger things happening. Okay. You, you mentioned um, Bob Dylan. Yes. And like most people who are who are sort of categorized as singer-songwriters, almost everybody's got some like, yeah, I love Dylan. Okay, so Dylan, just aside for a second, and who, can you talk a little bit more about other in, other influences? I know you were mentioning some jazz, and you were, you were talking more nebulously about how your upbringing and stuff, but is there anybody that you go like, yeah, these guys right here, I'm like, and they're like kind of like my, you know, go-to guys or... Well, I would say... What's wrong with that? <laughs> well, that would be definitely one would be, I mean, anybody that listens to my bass playing would be like, he, he loves Jocko Pistorius. Okay. I mean, and, and, and the reason for that is because of the prowess that he offered, and at, maybe at the same time, I, I was so impressed with him on a multitude of levels. Jocko was originally a, a drummer. He broke his wrist playing football, um, and he couldn't really do it as well. He was a traditional grip, so he started playing the bass. His father was a musician. He has other musicians in his family still playing today. Um, and the, He was at the forefront of that movement of the 1970s and people like Herbie Hancock and so many people worked with him because of his ideas and, and abilities. And he's a piano player. He played the bass. He was an arranger. All of those things that for me as a young musician pushed me to to be like, wow, like these people are more than just, you know, a flash on a stage with pants. 
They're they're trying to be that because to me Jocko was like Hendrix. He was out there throwing salt on the stage, wearing flip flops with his hair and like a ponytail at the top, wearing a t-shirt and black shorts. And when the curtains would open, Peter Erskine would say, and there he would be sliding across the stage like James Brown. Or I've heard people in stories where he'd be playing two basses. There's one on his lap and another one in his hand. Then he'd put the bass down on the stage. He'd play a whole bunch of cluster chords. All of a sudden, run away from the instrument, start sprinting towards it, turn a flip in midair, come down, and hit a bunch of harmonics on the bass. Like people were, you know, aside from his bass playing, he was a showman. And 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 I also liked that about his personality. But then again, very... A, a dignified musician at the same time. He was definitely a go-to, and, and from probably the age of 14, still to this day, I'm still analyzing his music and looking at it. And then Hendrix is another one of those people who, for me, really turned me on to Dylan. And, and That's I, what's true of a lot of people. You know, know, for sure. a lot of people should, yeah, for sure. And the realization that there was also this cultural divide that Hendrix, or even Mingus for that matter, would talk about. Because here Hendrix was accepted by a predominantly white audience, and the black audience that was into something completely different were pressuring him. Like, you know, and he would even hide when he was listening to Dylan records because he didn't want to be judged or scrutinized. But he, he loved what Dylan was saying and how he said it. And it's the same thing with Mingus. He's like half white, half black. He's got some Cherokee in him. I'm... He didn't fit in any normal genre or grouping of people, and people would ask him about music, and he'd say, "Well, it's all music." You know, when I he'd say, "I go to Europe," they call me an American artist. They don't say I'm a jazz musician. And for me, that's also why I allowed myself to license as a composer or a writer to say, "Hey, you know what? On this record, there's going to be a pop tune, a folk tune, a jazz tune, a progressive number. There's go- it's okay." Because, I mean, look, you put on a Beatles record. I love the Beatles. There's so many different genres that you can say, well, this kind of feels like this. This kind of feels like this. this. And not only that, inside the songs themselves, there's time changes. You might go from 4-4 to a bar of 3, then to 2-4, and back to 4 again. So I love that that sort of moldable aspect of music without having being so clinical and there being some kind of a, uh, you know, an equation that says this is what makes music right. Um, okay, that brings up a, that brings up another uh, point. You know, when you listen to the Beatles, right? You know, they're they are they're you know you hear rock and roll, blues. You hear stuff that sounds like you know maybe uh, uh, tr- traditional uh, you know British folk music or show tune type music. You know, but at the end, of, but you still it's unmistakably the Beatles, no matter what song, no matter where they are. And that's something that I noticed about your music is, no matter where you venture. It's got that head sauce. Oh wow! <laughs> oh, you know, and it's like you know, there's like like this like oh, this like thread that runs through it, um, and it's you, you just attribute that to sort of sort of just like your own sort of interpretation of these styles and how they just sort of flow through you, or is there something conscious going on there? Do you have a sound that you're trying to like find? Like, well, you know what? That, that, that? That's an amazing question, and I think it, it ties into the fact that like, well, yeah, I'm out of necessity is the reason why I write. And, and, and I, I mean that because, for me, aside from trying to make a living out of it, that I'm doing now and, and, and you know struggling in the process, at the same time, the reason I started 
was because it, it made me feel connected. It made me feel connected to myself, my surroundings, and all of those things. So even if I never made a dime, you know, I'll still be on the sunny side of the street, the street if you'll excuse the pun, right? <laughs> so, so the, for me, that that that's the the biggest thing. And and in in that process, I'm always trying to be honest with an interpretation. If I'm doing a tune like you know, you say you were listening to you know the spirit of radio. Uh, because that's where that came from for that person and that writer. When Neil Peart wrote the lyrics and how they put the song together, that's the way the band felt. It. And that's how it made me feel. So even in that process, I always say to artists and other people or uh, students that I'm working with, you know, it's so easy, and once again, it ties into my statement before about defining yourself with another artist. You can imitate people. You can be, hey, he sounds exactly like Hendrix. He sounds exactly like da 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 He's like... She sounds like da-da-da. But how do you sound? I'm always trying to even ask my students and myself that question or other people. I could say, well, that song sounds, and that's the arrangement for this, or this is the chord structure for this. I could point out 20 different songs that all have the same chord structure. But it's the emotional content that means something behind it. And also, to me, to me it also has to do with how you play with that information that makes it yours because you know people can say well you know I stole this lyric from here I've heard this before you know in a, in a in songwriting sessions with people I won't name names with but it's like yeah we took the drum part from this and we took the, the chord arrangement from this and I'm like and that's how you put it together like to me it's like going to a scrapyard with that and then trying to build a car when for yeah. me the car is the car is already there, you know, or the stone or the figure in the stone, excuse me, is already there. You just need to already pull away the dirt and the grime, and you'll start to see the figure because it 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 it, it needs to be there. So hopefully, and I take your compliment, you know, wholly to heart. I really appreciate that. I, I I'm hoping <laughs> that that translates. So when you hear it, that has that defining sound. Well, yeah, absolutely, um, for sure. You, you, yeah, you definitely. There's that thread, and no matter what, you know, everything we've done, we've played you a few times on our radio show, and you know, that no matter where you are, no matter what you're exploring, you know, you have that sound. Speaking of different sounds and influences, I'd like to talk uh, for a couple minutes about the um, the song Jamaica, your trip to Jamaica, and some of the you did some humanitarian work as part of that. Can you uh, can you talk to us about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um... I mean, just saying the word makes me feel good, you know, Jamaica. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, it's, uh, I've always wanted to go there, even as a young kid, you know, uh, and, you know, listening to people tell, oh, we went on a trip to Jamaica, it's so beautiful, the people, da, da. and, and, you know, time goes by, and you start to realize you need to take a little time and do something with yourself and maybe take a vacation. So my wife and I, we said, look, she's been wanting to go ever since I met her 20-some odd years ago. And I said, well, let's do it. Let's let's go. So we went for the quote-unquote, you know, resort experience, but in a very short period of time, hanging out with musicians at the resort and other people that worked there. We were off campus, as I will call it. And in that process, and going back now a number of times over the last three years, have have felt so reinvigorated as a person because of, the connection that people still have with themselves there. And I won't lie to you, there's a lot of poverty 
if you don't leave the walls of the quote unquote you know resorts, you don't see what that is. The average Jamaican makes one hundred and thirty five dollars every two and a half weeks, and if you go shopping there in a normal grocery store or markets, you start to realize that you know some of the food there is at par here, so it's almost next to impossible to kind of get ahead and it it's hard for me to sit there in a beautiful tropical paradise environment and watch people struggling. I can't do it in good conscience. So in the last three years, what we've been doing is there's a company here that has shipping barrels, and we collect things from neighbors and friends and anybody that wants to donate. Plus, over the course of about you know every three months, from dollar store things to things that go on sale like soap and toothpaste and toothbrushes, books, pens for the kids, things they need for school, any kind of little thing that we can find that could be utilized. That in some cases, you're like, why is this at a dollar store? Nobody's buying it. You know what? They don't have that. So we send barrels about three times a year, and they go to a, a couple friends of ours, one of which is a minister that runs the African Zionist Methodist Church there, and another friend of ours, that is now a family member because we're godparents to his youngest daughter, Imani. And that all has tied us into the cultural community of the island. And we just love giving back in that way whenever we can. And and being able to, you know, have other people, like I said, family, friends, neighbors, be able to contribute. Everybody then feels like they're they're doing something. And at the same time, Lou, in the process, because I'm a musician and hanging out, I've been buying guitars when I go there. And this guy's got a little place in Ochos Rios. I buy a guitar. It's like 115 bucks. They're decent. You can plug them in. They're tunable. They're acoustic. And I teach kids while I'm there. I go around and I talk to people and I say, you have some kids? Or if there's kids hanging around, and you, well, would you be willing to? Yeah, sure. Come on. You know, four o'clock, come to the, the cabin in the jungle and and I and I do this, and at the same time, when I'm done, I give the guitar to one of the kids. And and the idea is that look, you keep learning, learn from other people, show other people what you can learn or what you've learned, and and give back. And the reason for this is because one of my friends, Clive Johnson, we call him Blow Blow. He's a horn player, alto player, flute, tenor. He went to Alpha Boys School, and Alpha Boys School is run by a Christian church there, Catholic church. They bring wayward boys and orphan children from off the streets, and they teach them five trades, one of which is music, electrical work, carpentry, all sorts of stuff, but music is one of them. And that's the only school in all of Jamaica, other than some of the high schools that have donated instruments, have limited access to instruments, have small band programs. So I was like, so many of the guys and people that I've met playing at the resorts that are my buddies now all went to Alpha. So I thought, okay, I'm going to talk to some people. I'm going to talk to the police chief and Ochos Rios and a couple of the, and that's a whole other story. I'll get into that another time. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And also a couple of the youth group organizations that are running football uh, groups and art <laughs> programs. What do you think about a a music mobile idea because they have a book mobile that goes around and there'd be a, little, a bus with a driver and a music teacher and instruments and the kids in the parishes and the schools they get an hour and a half the bus would come in they could play instruments they could learn the basics of music which is super important and it, and and it would work and it would be 
greatly sponsored, a public sponsorship, you know, nonprofit organization. And and I went and found Bunny Whaler, who was the last surviving singing member of the five of Bob Marley and the Whalers. And and I was trying to get his blessing, you know, on the whole idea because he okay. was trying to start a school there as well. So all of that is kind of made me feel, like I said, once again, human. You know, Western civilization, there's so much going on all the time. And there isn't Jamaican culture, but there they still communicate and it's, it's kinetic, and it happens on a porch at 11 o'clock at night with 16 people sitting around playing guitar and eating, and I, that is what I miss. It's what right. I remember as a kid in the 70s happening continually in my home, and at the same time, it's now happening on a porch in this beautiful place. So it was, it was so easy for me to, to do these kinds of things, to participate in it and want to do that, and when I get a chance to talk about it, I do. Okay, good. Uh, moving, oh, that, that's, uh, I mean, th- that's very powerful, uh, you know, way, way to create music is that sort of like just qu- sort of quiet connection with people and not a whole lot of, uh, you know, worrying about what it's going to be or just kind of going with it and uh, in a sort of uh, well, uh, low-tech sort of, sort of way, you know. Well, and you're right, Lou, because that's really like Bob's story. You know, yeah. Bob's from St. Anne. The story goes that Bob begged this guy that had a shop with a guitar in the window over and over again. He had no money. This is when he was really little, before he was got older and he was welding and all that other stuff. And finally, the guy said, look, just take the guitar and get out of here. <laughs> and that was Bob's thing. That's how yeah. Bob... So I figured it it can happen just like you said. It doesn't have to be in this huge thing... It doesn't have to be filled with, you know, overhead and all. It, it's kinetic there, so just let it happen that way. We we forget that sometimes, and so it's good to have that reminder. Um, speaking of kinetic, okay, trying to segue here. <laughs> we talked. We talk, you mentioned briefly Spirit of the Radio. Uh, you did a, a remake of this. I don't like the word cover because we didn't really cover it. You did it. You did your own thing with it. Um, and I, this was part of a contest. So to tell us about that. Well, uh, Anthem Records uh, and Alba uh, Music is also holding a, uh, a competition. They hold multiple competitions, but this one in, in particular is the 40th anniversary of the band's existence. They're on the road. They've just announced as well, too, that this will be kind of their last tour. And they're right. videotaping it all, and there's a huge competition, which is $5,000 in cash plus uh, flights out to Los Angeles, tickets to the show, accommodations, and all this stuff. And, I'm, and, and Stover says, look, man, this is right up your alley. <laughs> so I was like, okay, great. And and for me, there is even a greater highlight behind it because, I mean, I was working on the tune and farting around in the studio when Mike Jack showed up, who's my co-producer. We work together all the time. And he's like, what are you, what are you, that's great. Like, we should do, and I'm like, no, nah, you know, just the, I'm just farting around. He goes, no, 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 let's record it today. And we would plan to work on something completely different. So when it was done, we were like, this is pretty cool. It, like, do you think they'd let us use it? So here I went online, and I started doing the research, and contacted Anthem, and I sent them a copy of it. And I said, is it okay if I put it on the record? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, oh, cool. Then later, I actually, I was doing an event that I do every year. It's for a hospital fundraiser, and one of the guests um, was Alex Lifeson. So here I am, first of all, playing you know, in front of Alex and hanging out. And 
And I finally got to actually meet him, and we had a nice little talk, and we sat down and had a little food, and it was amazing. And I just felt so honored. At first, I was like, blah, 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 like stumbling over my words, and I'm like, <laughs> let, me, let, let me start all over again. Hey, Alex, how's it going? Can I sit down? You know, and from there, it was great. And I just, for me, it was like, wow, like a childhood you know, band that I love to listen to that inspired me. And here I am hanging out with Alex talking about the song that's on the record. And I'm like, this isn't happening. What a great experience. Oh, highlight. <laughs> One of the big highlights of your career thus far. Yeah. Um, so uh, what, So moving forward, what is, what's next? So you said so you've got uh, um, Red Omen, uh, you're working on your next record. Do you have some, you have some touring coming up? That's right. I'm headed to New York City. I'm really excited about that. Start spreading the news. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, 25th, uh, 6th, 7th, and 8th. I'll be playing in Manhattan right around Central Park, places like the Bitter Ends, which is the oldest oh, yeah. well, you know, all rock and roll folk slash clubs in New York City. Dylan's played there, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young. I mean, I could go on and on about the list of people. Uh, pianos, I'll be playing... Uh, auto shrunken head they're all clubs in around the, in that area and i'm off to philadelphia for one night in pa um and i'm just excited to be to be playing and out on the road and doing some stuff for for that part of the summer Cause, you know man i'm canadian and there's so much snow and it's so cold up here i know it's cliche and here i am like bitching about it people like suck it up you're canadian there's nothing <laughs> written anywhere that says canadians have to love snow or anybody. Really? Oh. Well, so, so, so being you know in New York in July is, you know, I'm feeling lyrics coming. You know. Well, folks, you've heard it here. Uh, not all Canadians are like in love with snow. So <laughs> we didn't know that. So you know, then we can start. Uh, you can let's, let's spread that around so everybody gets straight on that. Yes, and if I get any hate <laughs> mail from Canadians, it's okay. I don't mind. <laughs> oh, so so you've got to get some dates coming up. Uh, for the folks out there who are uh, listening, uh, go to. Uh, edroman.net and there's uh, the whole everything is there there's a great video that's shot uh, on your trip uh, uh, for, for actually in Jamaica with the song the, the, the video the music video to the song Jamaica is right there on the front page all the touring information Ed's bio everything you want to know about Ed to become a complete and total Ed head um, so <laughs> is there anything else that you want to plug or talk about before well, yeah, we wrap I mean, up I, I'm, I'm doing these series of four little videos right now. They're all about a minute and 40 seconds long. And what they really are is is like sort of corporate tribunal hearings on the lyrical content of letters from high latitudes. They're fictitious, obviously, people. But um, <laughs> the, the, the total oh. four that will summate, if you go to my YouTube channel, Special Ed Roman, you'll see them there. They're the latest two videos. The four of them are really the um, <clears throat> beginning of my release uh, and uh, for, hey, there's a record coming. It's going to be called Red Omen. And the fourth video will illustrate where that's leading. So um, look for it. I, I'm having fun making them. And they're somewhere like a cross between um, Das Boot and Clockwork Orange. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's a combination. Um, uh, Letters from the, uh, from High Latitudes is Ed's latest uh release that he has out right now. So you can, again, go to edroman.net. You can get all the information. There's iTunes, Amazon, and everything. Ed, it was really good talking to you, man. 
Lou, it was great talking to you, man. Nice being on your show. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to maybe speaking with you in the future. And uh, in the meantime, good luck with your new record. Uh, any, uh, you're heading back to Jamaica uh, anytime soon? We're planning a trip for February, um, probably three weeks this time, back to Papa Curvin's place. He's another recording artist. He's got a recording studio there. That's where I was at last time, filled with musicians, recording, playing music all day. That's where I like to be. All right. Okay. And hey, buddy, you have a great rest of the day, and we will be watching for your new record and listening to uh, le- uh, letters from high latitudes. All right. Thank Take you, care, Lou. Man. Thank you, Lou. And happy Father's Day coming up to everybody in Canada and and happening everywhere. All right. I'll see you later, man. Thanks. See you, man. Thanks, Lou. Bye.